Hey, this is Michael. Thanks so much for listening to Soma's podcast. Before this week's teaching, I just want to take a second and thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing and subscribing. It makes a huge impact. Enjoy the message. This summer is the book of Exodus. It's going to be a long, it's going to be a long series because book of Exodus is long book and your boy is long winded. So put those together and you got, we'll, we'll be through the, we'll, we'll maybe at the end of summer, we'll get through this. Okay. So, uh, but the cool thing is, is like staying in a passage of scripture forces us to deal with some things and have some conversations that we would, would not have had otherwise. Right. Because the text is just like, all right, here's like, God's like, all right, this is what's next. Hit that. I want you to hit that. So, um, and for all of us, pop culture has kind of shaped Exodus. Like even when I say it, you have in mind kind of what you're thinking when you think about Exodus is shaped by the felt board that you got when you were growing up, right? Or the cartoon or, or the, you know, like what, for example, uh, this image elicits some things that like brings out some things in some of us. All right. How many of you remember this movie back in the day? You're dating yourself big time. If you remember this movie back then, Charlton Heston, right? Look how beautiful that man is beautiful. He's a beautiful, mo- this is my goal. My goal is to just crush this for like 30 years and grow this bad boy out a little bit longer and keep as much of the hair on top of my head as I can and get like a robe. And uh, anyway, so, but this, this, this is kind of, some of us, when we're thinking of Exodus, we think of this movie because this is what we, we experienced growing up or whatever. Um, for me, I remember growing up in 98, there was a movie that came out, DreamWorks, The Prince of Egypt. Y'all remember that? That was my jam back in the day. Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey sang that song and we all cried. You remember that? Um, so good. Uh, but so that, that kind of frames, when I think of Exodus, I think of the cartoon. I think of that, Prince of Egypt. Or um, if I'm being real, my favorite pop culture reference to Exodus, uh, especially given summertime, is Bob Marley. I love some Bob Marley. Okay. It's like, if I want to get in a good mood, just get chill. Right. Um, and I'm not attaching anything to it. I'm not saying anything about, you know, it's like, I'm just saying like, I like Bob Marley. Okay. So like, so Exodus, I just, you know, just go home and listen to that. Um, it's just kind of a soundtrack for the series or whatever. Don't have anything to do with Jesus. I just like it. Okay. So, uh, but all summer long, we're just going to soak in the pool that is the second book of the Bible because, and here's why, not because of a felt need. I know some of you are like, can we just talk about my anxiety or can we just talk about my marriage? Can we just talk about how not to be broke? But I promise you, as we spend time um, in the book of Exodus, all of the things that we have a felt need for, God will address every bit of that as we submit ourselves to his word. I promise you. Um, and and he, he addresses all kinds of things in this text. And so it's going to be an overview which means you got a homework assignment, read Exodus, right? We're going to hit chapters. We're going to hit chunks of scripture. We're going to hit certain passages, but it's not going to be exhaustive. Um, so just when you can spend some time, some are reading uh, the book of Exodus. And so the term Exodus is, uh, is a Greek term. And the term means the road out or, or the way out. That's what Exodus means. And your Bible is written in English, um, but... But even this Greek term, Exodus, the original name for it, like if you're a Hebrew people, was Well Shemat. Well Shemat. And, and you're like, this guy's been gone too long. He's starting to drop Hebrew. It's getting weird. But like Well Shemat, the reason why I bring that up is because um, it means these are the names. And actually your Bible, the, the second book of the Bible starts with the word now, or maybe yours starts with and. Uh, and these are the names. Now these are the names. And the reason why any of that matters is because uh, Exodus is not the beginning of the story, it's the second book in a book of five 
uh, a book of five. And so there's another phrase, if you're familiar with church space, uh, that you've probably heard before, but the Pentateuch is, it literally means the book of five. Super profound, I know. But it's just five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Moses gives us these texts. It's basically like a little mini-series, like in Scripture as a whole. It's like Star Wars. You know what I mean? And if you watch the third one outside of context, it's kind of weird. It's like, what's happening? I don't know what's happening. Like, what, who, who is this person? You know. So if you watch them in order, read them in order. So all that to say, if you haven't read Genesis... Uh, Read Genesis so that Exodus makes more sense. So not only is your homework uh, read Exodus, but read Genesis so that it makes more sense for you. But um, Exodus is kind of like, and again, I made this Star Wars reference, but it's like episode two, Attack of the Clones, for all my, for all my Star Wars nerds out there. If that one doesn't land for you, Chamber of Secrets, okay? Or Batman Returns, you pick your franchise, whatever. But if you, if you watch them, read them out of order, it's like, so, so it's important. So everything in context, and we're going to reference back to Genesis and things like that, but just read it on your own. Um, I'm blazing through uh, the intro because I've got like three, work, three weeks worth of like, you know, I've got like two hours worth of material here. Okay, so just bear with me. But our overview for the summer is um, these are going to be some of the themes that we hit. We hit God's presence. We hit God's presence. We serve a God who's with us. Uh, and, and it's made manifest in the person of Jesus. Jesus comes, he lives, he dies in our place. He offers us salvation, freedom, life, hope, eternal. He, he offers us his spirit. So not only is he God with us while he's here, he's God with us while he's gone. So he's still God with us. And that's a huge theme of the text in, uh, in Exodus. God keeps his promises is another theme that we're going to see in this passage, um, in, this, in this book of the Bible, is that God is a promise keeper. Makes promises and then, he, and then he sticks to, to what he said. God's power is put on display all throughout uh, this book. We're going to be talking about power. We're going to be talking about deliverance. Overwhelmingly, the main theme in the text is finding freedom. So if you're new to our church family, our whole mission, what we're trying to do is get as many people as we can to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. And the second part of that vision, that finding freedom part, we're going to lean into heavy during this series because we serve a God of deliverance, and it's not a one-time thing. It's not like when I give my life to Jesus, all right, good, I'm never going to struggle again. Baloney. You're going to struggle tomorrow and 10 years from now, right? If you, and anybody who's mature in their faith knows hard things happen. I'm a human. I'm going to make decisions. I'm going to make poor decisions. I'm going to send them a bro- So I need Jesus later just like I need him today. And, and at the moment of salvation, I get to experience deliverance. But guess what? He gives us over to deliverance all the time. And so that's one of the things we're going to be talking about. And then sacrifice is another theme that we see show up in the book of Exodus, specifically uh, this sacrifice, this idea of substitution, somebody else's blood paying for, for your sins. And so um, sounds familiar. So the, all that is, is going on over the course uh, of this summer, and, and that's where we're headed. But Exodus, if you need some context, the story, it picks up at the end, really at the end of Genesis, um, towards the end of Genesis, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, loads his whole family, right, in that fifth wheel, and they're headed to Egypt. You know what I'm talking about? Like all 70 of them, they're rolling up in Egypt. So if you remember uh, the story of Joseph, Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob, and, uh, and Joseph has dreams, and he's favored, and coat of many colors, and dad loves him, and b- brothers hate him. You know, they beat him up, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and... Um, 
And, but he interpret, he's a good interpreter of dreams. And so that kind of positions him second in command over all of Egypt. Put the ring on the brother. Hey, you're in charge of all this. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. Hey, there's a, fa- there's a famine coming. Saves the region. Saves Egypt. Saves his family. And so his family come. Pharaoh says, hey, you know what? Invite your whole family so they don't starve in the desert. So his whole family comes, 70 of them. And when they come, uh, they spend time right there in the region. Favored. Right. And so they explode. Population just explodes. 70 by the time we pick up uh, Exodus chapter 12 tells us over, like, over 600,000 men alone, about 2 million people over the court. You're like, wow, it was over 400 years. Right. And so um, and so by the time at the beginning of Exodus, though, uh, there's a new regime. There's a new pharaoh. Population has exploded. New pharaoh looks out and goes, whoa. That's too many. We got too many of this minority, too many of this subset of the population, too many of these people that are not my people. And it's like they're, they're worshiping a God that's not me. They're worshiping gods that are, that are not our gods. And it's going, I, we got a problem. We got a Hebrew problem, right? And so that's where we pick up in the text. In Genesis 1, verse 8, if you got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have one, We would love to give you one after service. Ask a team member. All right, Exodus 1, verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become too far numerous, or far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. And so Pharaoh says... Hey, we've let this get out of hand. We have a Hebrew problem. And, and the, the, my undergrad, is a, I was a history major in my undergrad, which is terrible for, like, making money. You don't make a ton of money. Like, vocationally, it's not a great track in the sense of making money. It gives you great context and perspective. And so when I hear him say, we've got a Hebrew problem, I think Nazi Germany. We've got a Jew problem. I see Hitler in the back halls of Germany going, hey, we've got a Jew problem. We've got to deal with it. And so this whole passage, it, this, anytime you, you experience like a, a systematized oppression of a group of people, anytime a group of people have been marginalized or abused or enslaved or whatever, it always starts with us versus them. It always starts with, hey, we got we to we deal with these guys. It's an us versus them mentality, and that's where we're at in this passage. And because he has absolute power, and because he's, this isn't a democracy, this is a dictatorship, he's Pharaoh. So here's what happens after he says we have a problem. He says uh, in verse 11, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. He's like, we've got some building projects. Let's put these brothers to work. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. That is a key part of, of the passage that we're covering today. The more that the people of God were oppressed, the better it was for the agenda of God. So, uh, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter, harsh with labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields in all their harsh labor the egyptians worked them ruthlessly and so here's this part in the chapter chapter one we see uh just straight up abuse straight up oppression 
enslaving a people, moving from backhaul conversations about we got an issue to, hey, you know what, we got all these things we want to accomplish. Why don't we just have these people do the thing? And then increasingly it becomes more abusive, more physical, more dehumanizing. And it's hard. It's a hard place to be when there's no one to call out. Uh, There's no one to call when acts of violence come on you because they've been sanctioned by the government. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about uh, the Hebrew people in Egypt, whether you're talking about the Nazis in Germany, whether you're talking about the people of South Africa under apartheid, whether you're talking about the early American South and slavery, whether you're talking about, you pick, you pick. But it's, it's, all, it's, like a, it's an impossible place to be. You go, this is sanctioned by the government. And, and so that's the place that they're at. It becomes part of the culture. And so what started as we have a Hebrew problem has now become forced labor and a ruthless drive to wear down this people group. And yet I love it because the more that they oppress, the more that they push, the more that they they hammer, the more that they spread. And, And God leverages all of that for his own agenda. So we keep reading in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. And so what started off with, hey, we have a a problem to, hey, let's put them to work to, hey, you know what, uh, you know, let's abuse them a little bit to now this guy is a psycho. He's at the place where he's like murder babies. That's where King, that's where Pharaoh is at. It's next level crazy. And he says uh, the Hebrew boys. And the question is, why the boys? Because in Pharaoh's mind, the girls serve no threat. They pose no threat to the kingdom. He's like, we can make them slaves. Uh, we can traffic them. We can trade them. They can make more Egyptian babies. They're not a physical threat to the kingdom. Don't worry about it. The girls aren't a threat, which the irony is going to hit you. The irony in that is just going to hit us smack in the face here in a minute. Look at verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done all this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwives arrives. We just think we can't get there in time. You know, they're professionals. Like we should, anyway, and, and so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. He's like, this is not working out. I can't work through the midwives. So Pharaoh just empowers all of the Egyptians. This becomes an edict by the man that they see as God. Here's what it says. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but, every, but let every girl live. So we're kicking off our summer series with real feel-good vibes, right? Some genocide, okay? So welcome to church. Uh, I know you're glad you came. But like this oppression, dehumanizing the Hebrew people, um, and then just trying to eradicate an entire subset of the population. Uh, and if we're not careful, we will read through Exodus. This is, the way, this is what I've done historically. You will read through Exodus and you will, uh, it's just like your felt board version or whatever you saw in the movie. Or you're like, yeah, I remember that scene from Prince of Egypt. That was really like, if you're not careful, you, you, you forget that these, this really happened. These are real people. And there's been an edict to murder an entire group, like 
all of these little Hebrew children. I want you to imagine what it must be like, and this is helpful, to put yourself in Scripture and go, what would it be like to be a Hebrew in that time? To pray for, desire, want a kid of my own, to hope for a child, and then we find out, oh, we're pregnant, and then we're hopeful, and then there's an edict that's passed down, kill all of the Hebrew boys, and we're praying and hoping, man, we hope it's a girl. And then you deliver, and it's a son. And you're going, how are we going to, what are we going to do? And then someone's empowered to come into your house, kick down the door, take your son from you. And, and you, have to, you have to decide in that moment, do I, do I hold my wife back because they're going to kill my wife? Or do I, do I, do I attempt to like do something about it knowing good and well they're going to kill all of us in this moment? Like That's the space that they're in. It's an insane space. Like none, it's lost on every single one of us because we've never been in that space, but it's reality. People have been there. Apartheid, slavery, Nazi Germany. The people have been there, like recently, not just thousands of years ago, but even more recently in human history. And so, um, I want you to think about this. I, I was thinking about I was thinking about what it must have been like to try and keep a baby quiet. And I was, and I remembered um, growing up and reading Anne Frank. Y'all remember Anne Frank in school? We were reading the book Anne Frank in school, and. Uh, and the little girl writes a journal about her experience in Nazi Germany hiding from, uh, from the Nazis. And she's, her and her family, and she just writes down thoughts and desires and dreams and fears and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that she writes is we just had to be, like, we're so afraid to make noise to the point that no one sneezed. And, and, and I'm thinking, okay, well, that's crazy. But also, this is at a time where, like, architecture's different. There's no sound buffering. There's no place to hide. I mean, this is, like, thousands of years ago. Also, you're a Hebrew slave. You don't really have much, like, resources. And then it's not a, it's, it's not a girl. It's not like a, a, a you know, a, a girl, a close to adolescent girl. It's a baby. You have an infant that you're trying to keep quiet. And you can't keep him quiet. And so the anxiety and the fear and the, and the terror that is in the hearts of the people that are there is, is unreal. And that's what they're facing. And I know we're thinking, that's crazy. I'm glad uh, nothing like that happens today. But it could. And, and, and the reason why is because history shows us that. And the reason why is because we're days removed from a gunman opening fire in an elementary school full of innocent children. And the reason why is because we're days removed from people being targeted and killed because of the color of their skin. People are still broken. People are still uh, sinners. The world is still like the world is still the world. We still experience. We still have evil. Right? It's something. It's a reality in which we all face. And so we read passages like this and experience hard things like war and racism, suffering needlessly at the hands of a psychopath. And we're asking some of the same questions that probably the Hebrews were asking during that period of oppression. God, where are you? Where are you when these kids are killed? Where are you when she was raped? Where are you when the hard things happen? And we don't like to think about it. We don't like to think about hard things. We only want to be comfortable. And I'm talking to myself as well. And yet it's reality. There's people out there, other countries, that experience things that you and I don't experience. And, and, and the hard part for people is shaping their faith and their hope, a future hope, and a God who loves them, who is for them, who is present, who has great things in store for their lives. And they're trying to just, they're trying to rectify, okay, you have a great call on my life and a purpose, and you want me to serve and love you, and yet I'm experiencing these hard things. And that's one of the things we're going to learn in Exodus. And I think God has some things to teach us about that today, just in chapter 1. 
some stuff like how do we go through a really dark space like this and then have the hope that God offers us? I think uh, the first thing that I notice in these passages is that God is working behind the scenes. He's always working behind the scenes. God's at work right now in your life about things that you haven't even prayed for yet. So, and, and so even when we're going through hard stuff, we're, we're looking out and we're going, how does this work? And so we just have to trust him in the middle of the unknown. Charles Spurgeon, he puts it this way. God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. And so the question is, when we go through hard, painful things, moments where we don't have the answers, how can we get through these moments? The loss of loved ones, suffering, pain inflicted on us. How can we get through really hard seasons? And for the Christ follower, the encouragement is this. Jesus tells us, hey, you will experience suffering. If anybody has ever told you you're going to come to faith in Christ and never suffer again, that is a lie, right? Uh, And so you, you will experience suffering. You will experience trials. And then Jesus says this, but take heart because I've overcome everything that you're going to face, including death. And so he makes this bold claim. My life, my death, my resurrection gives way to your own. And everything that you and I could possibly face, our hope is only in the finished work of Jesus. That's the beauty of where we're at. Now, the Hebrews didn't have that. Like, they didn't have that at this time. They had a hope and a faith in a God and a relational God who was for them and who, who stepped in to their world. But Jesus comes as the culmination. Jesus comes as the true Moses, comes as the true deliverer. And you and I, we get to experience that. And we have the benefit of all of scripture. We don't take advantage of it, but we have the benefit of all of scripture to look at. And so we can look at the cross where Jesus dies in our place and see the love of God on display and the grace of God. And so even when I've experienced suffering at the hands of others, and even when I'm in a position of being oppressed, and I'm going to side note, none of us have been oppressed like these people have been oppressed. None of us experienced the type of opposition and abuse and pain that these people have experienced. And yet, the majority of us, um, uh, if we're not careful, we can just go through the motions. If we're not careful, we cannot um, call out to God, depend on God, trust God in the middle of a hard and dark season. And so um, that's what we see in this passage of Scripture. What's really cool about Exodus, and we'll unpack this over the next couple of weeks, is that for all the attempts that Pharaoh makes to destroy Israel, he finds himself serving the purposes of God, even, even as he hates the God of Israel. <laughs> it's so great. Like God leverages his anger and his hatred. And he's like, I'm just going to use that, bro. Like, you're, I mean, it's like every time you push, every time you press, every time you oppress, I'm only going to use that. And so it's so great because remember this passage, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more that they spread. Right. And so, um, it makes me think of this, this, uh, this quote, one, one often meets his own destiny on the road that he takes to avoid it. Uh, that is by the great theologian, Master Uguay, if you've ever seen Kung Fu Panda, okay? So it's like, yeah, I'm, no one bet me if I could get that in there. I just like, I, I have a three, almost three-year-old, and for nine months straight, he watched that, that movie, and I was like, that is so good. Like, and it's also Exodus, right? So, so, but what we see in, with Pharaoh is that every single time Pharaoh acts, every edict, every command, every step, every move he makes, uh, dangerously close to a Phil Collins song, uh, it simply serves the purpose of God to bring glory to himself, and it just adds this incredible irony to the narrative. And I love it. 
God loves it. He loves irony. He uses it. So the thought for this passage and for the book of Exodus in general is that most of the time, you and I, when we're talking about the care of God and relational God who's for us, who's working behind the scenes, right? Most of the time, we could see the care of God and the provision of God only after we've gone through hard things, not while we're in them. So we can look at Exodus and go, of course, duh, right? But then we're in the middle of our own mess and we're like, how are you going to work this out? How are you going to come through? How are you going to make this right? How are you going to redeem this situation? How are you going to make me whole in this area? How are you going to, how are you working through just this really hard space? And so the older we get, if you've never experienced that, just keep following Jesus. You will experience it. Okay. Uh, but, but how do we talk about God working behind the scenes when we have suffering to deal with real suffering? So we don't want to gloss over it. We don't want felt bored. We don't want to mad. We don't want like, you know, Disney version. We want like what's, what's real. Like in this passage, genocide, slavery, dehumanizing a people group, uh, women who were raped, a child who's been abused, people who are targeted and shot because of the color of their skin, senseless acts of violence. How do we talk about God caring for us and working behind the scenes, even in those types of situations? And the reality is, is we don't know all the details. We don't know how God works in all those spaces and what it, what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to trust God in those spaces is to just trust, just like Spurgeon said, that man, his heart is good. Even when I don't know how he's going to use this, leverage this, work this for my good, I know that he promises to do that. And so uh, Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That is overwhelmingly the beginning of this passage of scripture in chapter one. And so I realized for me personally, I'm sitting at a place of privilege. I'm sitting at a place where I haven't experienced very much pain and suffering. I'm sitting at a place where culturally a lot of people, um, it, it's not been hard for me. Majority of us has not been hard, right? And so um, the church should be a place, though, that we invite people and allow for other people to wrestle uh, when incredibly hard things happen in your life and you experience loss and pain, especially at the hands of others. Um, for people who struggle with doubt and fear and to be honest um, about not being able to make sense sometimes of what's going on around us and flesh that out in our faith. So the problem of suffering or the problem of evil, and you may be there right now. You're like, I'm here, but I have, I have intellectual objection. I have struggles with a God who loves me, who wants to be in relationship with me. And yet there's crazy junk that happens all around me. And I don't know how to reconcile that. How do I deal with that? And the way you deal with that is together. That's the, that's the felt need. That's the purpose of the local church is you can't carry your burden. You can't carry your gift. You can't carry uh, the hard things that life's going to throw at you in isolation. You can't follow Jesus alone. And so the beauty is, is create a space for me to, to have hard conversations. God's not, God's not scared of your doubt. God's not scared of your fear or your anxiety or your frustrations or your anger. There's biblical precedent for that all over the place. Like heroes of the faith. I'll give you a couple examples, right? This is King David. This is David. He says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hold your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? And David's A-team, Jeremiah, 
Great example. God calls Jeremiah. Hey, I want you to go and tell my people, the Israelites, that they're going to be punished and I want to send their butts into exile. And it's not a very popular message, but that's what I want you to go do. Okay, I'm going to be faithful. Don't worry about it. Go give him that message. He delivers the mail and then they beat that brother and then put him in some stocks and mock him. Right. And then the, and then he ends up in exile with God's people, too. And, and, and in Jeremiah chapter 20, here's here's how Jeremiah starts off chapter 20. He doesn't land here. You read the whole chapter, he lands in a really good place, but this is how he starts. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. He's like, can you give me another memo, please, right? And so the the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. And so he's like, how does this help? What are you doing with my life? Like, I'm experiencing all this pain and all this suffering and all these hard things. And so, and these guys are all American. Like if you and I were picking a squad of people, you know what I mean? Like if we were fantasy drafting some, some, some Bible characters, right? We'd be like, Jeremiah, I got that brother. Uh, King David, he's on my team. But like JV over here, you know what I mean? Like the rest of us. But it's like these are the heroes of the faith, and yet they struggle with doubt, struggle with fear, struggle with anger and frustration at God who loves them, who's in relationship with them because he's not worried. And this ought to be the type of place, instead of being like, I'm good, we're all good, everything's good. It's like, be real and honest with one another and share one another's burdens. And we are so bad at this, and I'm pointing to myself as well. We're so bad at this in the modern day American church. We feel like we have to just gloss over and pretend like everything is fine, except all of us know our theology, a collective theology that we're all not fine. And yet every time we talk to each other, we're like, we're good, we're good. It's like, what? And so anyway, so like, what are we doing? Uh, And why does this matter? Because we need to be honest about the wrestle that we have with hard things. And there's no shame in the wrestle. But don't do it alone and don't pretend, right? Uh, And so when you're broken and you're struggling, uh, we want to be as a church a safe place for people to deal with frustrations and questions because you're not designed to go through those things alone. Um, Brooke and I, just this past week, we finalized, like we finally got uh, the headstone in for our, our little girl, our daughter passed away last year, Zoe Hope, and it took a long time for him to make it because it was like a custom thing they made and they shipped in this marble. And, and so there's this, it hit us this week, um, just like the gravity of last year and the hard thing that we went through as a family and the loss of our daughter and what got us through it and what God blessed our, I mean, it was just amazing. The grace that he gave us in the form of people who just stood next to us and said, I love you. I'm for you. I'm mourning with you. I have no idea why there's an extra chromosome, why certain kids don't make it, why I don't, I don't know, but I am here. Just a ministry of presence. People praying, people being like, what can I do? Not pretending like they understood what God was doing or how he was going to leverage it for my good and his glory, but they were just like, I'm here. And what, what it did was it gave us a crazy peace and, and also what it did was it gave us the opportunity to leverage. Here's, this is Brooke's contribution to this message today. If you don't write anything else down, uh, I say today, you need to probably write this part down because Brooke added this. So uh, whatever the hard things that we endure, whatever pain we go through, it ultimately is not about you, but how God is going to use it to help others, to encourage others, to remind others of his faithfulness. It's better than like Master Uguay. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you think the Jews, what do you think the Jews were thinking when they were in Nazi Germany and they were hiding up in attics? What do you think they reflected on as they hid and they hoped? Exodus. The whole point 
of them going through the hard things that they went through was so that other people could go through hard things and reflect and go, God is faithful, God is good, God is just, God brought us through this one time, he's going to bring us through it. Again, what do you think the, the, the slaves in the American South, as they sang uh, spirituals in a cotton field, thought of, referenced, sang about when they were dehumanized, when they were oppressed, when they were enslaved, when they were beaten, what did they sing about? Exodus. <laughs> like, like what? Like the whole point of the oppression of God's people, the whole point for them to endure the suffering that they, that they experienced, the weakness, it was never about them. It was always about those who look back and see the faithfulness of God, the divine plan that we never see in the moment, but he give, it gives us over to a greater future and even a greater purpose. Like over, I mean, this thing is pop culture. This thing is referenced more than anything in Exodus. Like God delivers and so you may not have experienced systematic, uh, you know, oppression. I would argue the majority, if not all of us, have never experienced that. But, um, but you don't have to be an Egyptian slave to feel like you're in bondage. You can be enslaved with physical condition, a mental condition, struggling with depression or fear. You can be enslaved emotionally and spiritually. There's things in your life that you need to be freed from. There's things in your life that are not where God wants you. And they're not what you're made for. And his desire is to help you have deliverance in areas that you desperately need deliverance from. Stuff that you just decided. You're just like, you know what? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to faith in Jesus, but I'm good after that. I'm just going to be on autopilot. I don't want to be delivered. I don't want to find freedom. I don't want to go through hard things. He's going, no, I got so much more. I got so much more. It's not a one-time thing. I want more for your life. Hand me all the hard things. And so we got to make a choice, right? We got to want freedom. And so we see some people in this passage of scripture in Exodus, they want it. They make a choice. And here's the irony. There's some midwives. Look at this in verse 15. The king of Egypt, I'm going back to it. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby that's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Again, this is a guy who's considered a God. This is a guy who has total authority. And up to this point, the most powerful nation on the earth. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And when the king of Egypt summoned them, why have you done this? Why would you let them live? They said, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. Give birth before the midwives arrive. Right? They're playing with them. But verse 20, God was so kind to the midwives and, to the, and the people increased and became uh, even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. A couple things. God uses the weak to humble the proud. Every time. He does it in macro scale. He does it in your own life. The part of your life that you're most ashamed of, the part of your life that you hide, the part of your life that is the weakest is the thing that he will leverage to help do the most good in your life and make the most impact. And we hate that. And yet... <laughs> Is the, is, the, is the midwife. So it's important to note, uh, because context matters, that up to this point in history, women were treated a, a grade a, about right below cattle, right? So as a commodity, there was no legal standing. You couldn't testify in a court of law. Women were traded. As a matter of fact, if you had a daughter, almost always, it was a transaction. Anytime somebody wanted to marry your kid, it was like, all right, how many cows am I getting? How many weapons am I getting? Somebody like me with four, four daughters, you got like a small arsenal, right, out of, uh, out of all those things. And so we see Pharaoh disregard women entirely as a threat. And yet the most powerful nation on earth falls and is destroyed because of what is set into motion. Why? Because of the faithfulness of five women. 
the, the part of the population that he totally disregards is the part that turns the kingdom on its head. And so uh, the chapter introduces us to Shifra and Pua, but in next, the next chapter, chapter two, we meet Moses' mom who has the courage to defy the edict and put her son in the Nile River. Moses' sister who goes and watches Moses along the bank, she follows him and then follows a- enough so that she sees Moses scooped up by yet another woman, the very daughter of Pharaoh. what and so oh man it's so good i love the bible so um so women who pharaoh regarded as not a threat to the kingdom let's let the girls live kill the boys the girls we can use as a commodity we can make more egyptian babies right we can trade them whatever um they're definitely not a threat to the kingdom and god's like oh this is about to be so good (laughs) oh okay cool okay cool cool right so uh you know how brave you have to be? You know how brave you have to be to undermine a crazy dictator who has called for the mass genocide of a portion of the population of which you are a part? And you have no legal standing. You're a Hebrew slave. And you're a woman Hebrew slave. And you're a single woman Hebrew slave. And they defy the most powerful man uh, in the world. It's not a democracy. There's no voting. Pharaoh is God to his people. Killing babies is a crazy thing. And we've seen, we've seen other dictators call for and ask for crazy things. And then the rest of the nation just kind of follow suit and be like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And so, uh, but the faithfulness and the obedience of the midwives, here's what happens. Exodus 1, 20 through 20, 21. God was so kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So here's my point. God rewards those who fear him. He rewards those who fear him. And fear not in terms of God's mad at me or angry, he's out to get me, and that kind of fear. Fear in terms of reverence. Fear in terms of awe. Fear in terms of I am small. Fear in terms of standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon looking out and being like, bro, I am small. Fear in terms of like being out on a summer night, right? You're not competing with any kind of... Uh, um, fluorescent lighting or anything like that. I mean, you're just looking up at the night sky and you see stars and you go, whoa, whoa. Like we're on a little ball around one of those bad boys. Like, you know, like you just start, it starts to set in how small, how humble, how dependent you are on the God of the universe and that type of fear and reverence. That's what, that's what we're talking about in this passage. They feared Pharaoh. What are we talking about? They feared for their lives. They're like, this is going to kill us. And yet I fear God more. Right? So they placed fear where it, where it belongs. And so God used the perceived weakest person in that society, a single Hebrew female, to humble the most powerful person on the planet. And because of their humility, they feared God more than they, they feared Pharaoh. And so you might be thinking, big deal, whatever. They lied. They got away with it. Cool. Put it in the book. Um, they defied the order. Awesome. But how often do you and I, here's where we're at. Here's kind of the state of our faith and our own courage. I fear more the person sitting next to me. And And I don't even, there's not even the potential for death. But I fear what you think of me more than I do what God asked me to do. Fear of man plagues our moment in time. And I think, 
our access to each other on social, while it's good, it's also bad. We sit around, compare each other. We also care more about what, what each other think in ways that I think are super unhealthy. Here's where we live. We have misplaced fear, fear of what others think of us, fear of our boss, our peers, our family members, our spouse, our friends. We're so afraid of what like other people's appraisal is of our lives. And here's what's crazy. We don't even face potential death for doing the right thing. We just face the embarrassment of not being liked by people who are wrong anyway. (laughs) What are we talking about? And so um, how are we doing How are we doing in our courage of conviction? How are we doing it? Knowing the right thing, knowing the godly thing, knowing the just thing, knowing what he's called us to do and instead settling. Yeah, I know that was inappropriate. I know we shouldn't have said that. I'm just going to laugh it off. I'm going to make a tacit endorsement of it. I know I shouldn't be this in this environment, right? I know I shouldn't be here right now. I know I shouldn't. uh, But what are people going to think of me, right? What are they going to think of me? They're going to think I'm weird so dumb and the whole time we're like yes like the whole time we say we believe one thing but our lives reflect a different thing how are we doing at the courage of conviction do you stand up for the oppressed do you stand up for what's right do you stand up for the truth do you actively push back and defy evil even when it's hard these women were man they were courageous they were bold. They were brave. Like I look at it and I'm going, I probably wouldn't have done that. Probably wouldn't have done it. And so we have a chance to put fear in all where it belongs. To God, not to the person next to you, not to broader culture, not to, not to people that you don't even really know and you fear what they think about you, even though they're wrong put fear in its place. God, I'm going to give you reverence. I'm going to give you all. I want to trust you even when it's hard. Here's Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? You want to make right dealings, right decisions, live a life of impact, be an amazing leader? Fear God. And then Jesus goes on. He gives us this commentary in Luke 12. My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that do no more. It's like, what can people do to me? A lot. They can kill you. They could kill you, bro. And then, but Jesus goes on. He says, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you in hell. It's like, oh, yep. Checkmate. Fear God who's outside of all the other. Not because he wants to, not because he's mad at you, because we choose our own way time and time again. So even when what we face is hard and is painful, we don't understand why we're going through it. God is always at work behind the scenes. Always at work behind the scenes. He always uses those who would humble themselves, those who are considered weak or the weakest parts of yourself. He wants to choose to humble the proud. He's calling us to fear him and have an awe and a reverence from him for him over everything else, all the other things. And so if you're here and you're like me and you look at these midwives and you look at the women in chapter one and chapter two and you go, I don't know if I'm there. I don't know if I'm that. I'm faith wise. I don't know if I'm in that place. I'd like to get there. I want to get there. I don't know if I'm there, if I've got what it takes. Uh, to trust and have faith in that way. I've got one last encouragement, one last passage. Exodus 2, 23 through 25. We're going to hit Moses next week, but I want to jump ahead because here's the reality that they stay in all the way up through the end of Exodus 2. The Israelites continue to groan under the burden of slavery. This says this. They cried out for help. And their cry rose up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant 
He remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. The entire narrative of Exodus is predicated on the obedience of of the weakest part of that society, the most humble position in that society, some, some faithful women, and a cry. So if you're in a hard space and you're in a hard season and you're navigating like some really broken stuff in your life and you're going, I don't know how to deal with this, cry out. Cry out. There's biblical precedent over and over again that crying out to God, asking God to move in your life puts you in a position of humility. He goes, okay, now you're ready. what's so crazy is we wait until we're at the end of ourselves to cry out and here's what's cool even when we cry out even when it's hard God has been at work the whole time at the end of chapter 2 Moses is already born everything's already set into motion the deliverance of God's people has been the plan from day one and yet he, they cry out and that is the thing that's the linchpin that's the thing that just sets everything into motion cry out cry out. Where do you need God to break through in your life? What do you need to happen for your life personally, in your business, in your marriage, with your kids, with your whatever? Cry out and then watch God come through. Now, Exodus is a long book. It takes a long time to get to the promised land, but they get to the promised land. They get delivered. They get freedom. Why? Because they cried. So that's my greatest encouragement to you at the beginning of this summer. Man, if you do nothing else this summer, cry out. Cry out for the areas of your life that you need deliverance and need God to come through. Man, just remember that everything that we're hard, all the hard things we're navigating, he's working behind the scenes. Remember that he uses the humble. He uses the weak to humble the proud. And then just ask him. Like bold, audacious, God, there's no way. I, I don't see a way for this to work in my life. And yet, I'm asking you. I'm asking you to come through. I'm asking you to redeem. I'm asking you to deliver. I'm asking you to help me find freedom. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for the way you love us. Thank you that uh, you desire to deliver us. Not only from uh, our past, but from ourselves, our our predispositions to sin, struggle, our brokenness in our humanity. God, you desire to give us over to more freedom, more dependency, more joy, more hope, more identity rested in you rather than trying to impress the rest of the world. God, help us, please help us. Give us over to the courage of conviction that regardless of who's around us, our eyes are stayed on your word, on your promises, on your character, on your faithfulness. And even when it's hard, we, we cling to what is right. We cling to what is just. We help the oppressed. We help uh, the marginalized. God, we set our face towards justice and towards righteousness. And, towards, and not so that we can be judgmental to the rest of humanity. And it's not so that we can, we can act holier than thou. But so that we can be the answer to the people around us. So... 
God, give us over to more, more freedom. If you're here today and you're experiencing, man, I need some freedom in my life. If you're here and you're just, you would be honest with yourself and be like, I need some deliverance in some areas. I got some stuff I got to work on. I got some things I need God to come through in. I just want you to do some inventory soul searching right now. Think about what that is for you. And if that's you, be bold enough right now to just own the moment, confess it. Just raise your hand right where you're at. Be like, that's me. I need some deliverance and some freedom. Seeing hands go up all over the place. Yes, own it. Uh, and, and, and so just pray right where you're at. Just say, God, I need, I need you. I'm asking, I'm crying out in this area. And then just stay on that. Just stay on that cry. Let it hit you that it's been hundreds of years. Stay on that cry. And then watch God be faithful. If you're here and you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, man, God desires for you to experience new life. Jesus didn't come so that you could be good. Jesus came so you you could have life. He came so that you could have new life, an abundant life, and not settle for the old self or the old way or predispositions to strength. He wants to give you over to freedom. And so if you're here and you never surrendered your life to Jesus, again, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be bold, to confess him as Lord, to own the moment. That's me. I know I need what Jesus offers me. I know I need his life and his death and his resurrection and the hope that he brings. I know that I have not. I mean, I just made life about myself and I've not been true. I've not leaned into what's right. I've not been, man, I just haven't given my, fully surrendered my life over to Jesus. But today I want to give my life to Jesus. The prayer doesn't pray you. This doesn't save you. The the moment doesn't save you. Jesus saved you 2,000 years ago. And your faith in him, surrendering your life to him, is what seals that salvation in that moment. But I want to give you an opportunity for confession right now. If that's you, just raise your hand right where you're at and be like, I want to accept Jesus as Lord. I want to surrender my life to him. Right now in this moment, I want the freedom that, that he offers in the cross and in his resurrection. And I believe, listen, right where you're at, right where you're at in this moment. And if you're watching this later, right where you're at, it's a Holy Spirit moment. He just reveals the person of Jesus and you go, man, I gotta go all in. So just surrender your life. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for offering me freedom and a new life in you. And now give me over to your work. Give me over to faithfulness and obedience. Even in the middle of hard spaces, help me to trust you. Lord, we love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.